0: Welcome to The Hidden Island, a podcast where we talk about local island history. My name's Fiona Steele, and I'll be your host for this journey. Hello again, and welcome back to another one of our partner episodes. Today we're sitting in the Black Cultural Society's recording room, and we'll be talking about Black History on PEI, But instead of co-hosting, this time I'm taking a back seat as producer.
1: So I'm Tamara Steele, and I'm the executive director of the Black Cultural Society. The Black Cultural Society is a not-for-profit organization that exists in PEI to support the black community in PEI. And part of our mandate is to preserve the island's black history. So that would be, obviously, the the things that are history to us presently, but also preserving knowledge of our existence here today so that future generations can know that we were here and know some of the activities that, that we're doing today since that will be their history. So in part of that preservation of history, we wanted to talk today on this podcast about some of that history and some of that history from a different perspective um, and some new new information that's being researched now. And I'm joined today by Debbie Langston and Erin Sardina. I'll let you introduce yourselves.
2: Hello. I'm Debbie Langston and I am the I'm currently working as the diversity consultant with the Department of Education and Lifelong Learning. I've lived in PEI for 18 years now and um fairly active in the community in different boards and organizations.
3: Awesome. Hi. I'm Aaron Sardina. I work for the Black Cultural Society as well. I'm the Education and Policy Coordinator. Um, I've been been here for upwards of half a year now, I think at this point. Um, and I'm from Ontario originally, sort of landed here uh, in the middle of COVID and got stuck and I'm happy to be here, so.
1: (laughs) Awesome. So the reason that I've asked the two of you to join me today is because you're doing some really great work on a project called the Black Women's History Project. And I'd like, Debbie, if you could tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely.
2: So... I guess I will take you back to when I first heard about uh, Black Island history. I was working in a school and it was Black History Month. And so I set about trying to find some information for, about Black History Month for the students. And I came across information on the bog. And in talking, I, first of all, I was surprised because I, this was probably only three or four years ago. And I was surprised that I didn't know anything about it. And then I talked to my students and they didn't know anything about it. At the time, I was the chairperson with the Advisory Council on the Status of Women. And so I took my concerns to one of our board meetings and, again, I had a very mixed response. Some of the members knew about the bog and the Black Island history and others didn't. So because I was fortunate to be in the position I was in at the time in a meeting with the minister, uh, uh, Minister Jameson, who who is responsible for the status of women... We mentioned it to her and she was very supportive and so from that the project was born that uh, they would support it as a collaboration with the advisory council. So initially I started that as a volunteer. We pulled some board members together and then coincidentally I, got, I was employed by the Department of Education and so the resource rolled over into that so it comes under my umbrella with the department.
1: Great. And can you tell us a little about um, how that project's progressed? Like who's involved? Um, what info are you collecting? How is it being collected?
2: Absolutely. So when we started the project, as I said, there was myself as a volunteer leading leading the project. We had the advisory council for the status of women. We have the interministerial women's secretariat, uh, Michelle Harris-Genges sits on the board as well. And then Uh, We have a member of the Department of Education and Lifelong Learning. As I said, when I initially started the project, I I didn't work there, so we have him as well as a collaborative effort. And as we kind of, we had a couple of meetings in and we realised that we were missing community voices, so I connected with the Black Cultural Society and invited Tamara to the table, and we also have Linda Hennessy, who is the descendant of the original Black Islanders, and so she sits at the table as well.
1: Great. And Aaron, uh, tell us a little bit about your work on the on this project and how you got involved.
3: Awesome. So yeah, I was initially brought uh, this idea when uh, you, Tamara, actually pulled me <laughs> aside one day. I was like, I think you should be doing this because I this is not something I uh, have uh, the capacity to handle at the moment, which is totally fair. You're running an entire organization uh, very well, I might add. Yeah. And uh, so I took this project on and uh, basically, as you mentioned, it's sort of that community voice. And my responsibility was to sort of look through these uh, three lessons that we were going to be uh, presenting and uh, looking at it through the lens of anti-racism, or I guess that's the lens that I sort of inherently took on. Um, And went through these three lessons and provided feedback, you know, about certain language and how, you know, uh, certain language can be better communicated in relation to some of these concepts of anti-racism and uh, brought it to you and uh, we've had a couple meetings where we sat through worked through some of that and uh, yeah it's an ongoing process but yeah happy to be a part of it
1: and I'll ask one more kind of introductory question about the project I want to know um, if you can tell the audience or tell the listeners what is the what is the goal of the project what are you hoping to to present or to have um, as a final product
2: the project is based around the history of Black Island women, because when it's the, the inception at the inception of the project, I was working with the Advisory Council of the Status of Women, so that was the gap that we identified, and that was that's obviously to do connected with their mandate. The goal is to create a resource in the education system or within the curriculum, because we don't actually ha- currently have one that teaches that history. So um, the program's been designed for grade sevens to nine and it will be, none of the work within the curriculum is mandated, but it will be a resource, and we're hoping to have it scaffolded so it's literally like a toolkit that a teacher can pick up and deliver to classes, especially when we have teachers that will raise concerns that they haven't necessarily been educated with the information themselves, and so it's about how do we build their capacity so that they can deliver this information in a way and ensure that the students in the classroom who typically haven't seen themselves represented or heard themselves represented can actually see themselves in, in their education.
1: That's awesome. I think that we can all agree that there's <coughs> definitely a gap in the curriculum when it comes to black histories. Uh, so I'm really happy that this project exists because that will, you know, that's starting to fill some of that gap. You know, Scott Parsons had developed the old stock, the play. number of years ago and that is part of the curriculum now as an optional item that you can use to achieve your outcomes your curriculum outcomes but it's not mandatory so do you know if this is and I'll say maybe in PEI that was really the start of having any black stories in our curriculum here so this will be maybe only the second thing That's happening with that regard. Is there any, do you have any knowledge of whether or not this will be a mandatory part of curriculum?
2: As I said, none of the curriculum is mandatory, so a teacher will just have their outcomes that they have to meet and they can meet that however they choose. There's a new social studies curriculum that's been designed, which is much more global, so, and it looks at Canada's history and in multiculturalism, and so I think that this will be a natural fit within that new. The, within within the new curriculum. So I'm hoping teachers will take it up, and we're we're trying to think about creative ways that we can build the capacity for teachers and build that understanding. And so, how do we get that into the classroom? Do we have other te- other people come and deliver it and demonstrate how you can use that, or um, do we just scaffold everything and have teachers have a, pe- a professional training or professional development so that they know how to deliver it? So those are parts of the ongoing conversations that happen as we create the results Mm
1: -hmm. yeah and that'd be an important conversation too because we we you know one of the calls that we make especially during february and black history month we're always making that call of our stories our voices Mm. but when it comes to when it comes to the education system we're really considering that these are teachers and their job is to teach so should should we bring someone else in Mm -hmm. or or should they should we give them the tools they need to teach this material.
3: It's a little bit of a catch-22 as well, and I want to go back to what you were saying about, you know, nothing is inherently mandatory in this curriculum. And the reason it's it's tricky is because on one hand, we want to ensure that teachers are, you know, teaching students elements of the curriculum, which should be anti-racist, right? That teachers are bringing forward anti-racist practices into their classroom. We want to ensure that that's, you know, something that's happening. I think we can all agree on that, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, we don't want to enforce or standardize so much of the curriculum because we we know now that that isn't an effective way to um, bring knowledge to our students, right? I think that's sort of ubiquitous across Canada, at least, that, you know, maybe we need to start looking at what community curriculum looks like. And I think that's where this project really um, f- fits pretty nicely because we are looking at our own community and saying, well, what, what elements of our own community are not being taught and how do we ensure that they are being taught? So, You know, do we enforce that or, you know, maybe strongly suggest that? Do we provide opportunities for teachers to learn about it? Um, It's even more tricky because when we look at the literature, we find that typically when we try to bring multicultural diversity, equity, inclusion practices to certain schools, it's not done, um, I'll say with air quotes, sufficiently enough. And teachers find that they haven't been given proper resources, um, you know, on their already extremely busy schedule, right? And using multiculturalism as sort of a panacea that doesn't work to, you know, create this monolith of diversity in a classroom. All students fit under one umbrella. So hopefully with this project, we actually find that they're our own community is, is sufficiently represented and we can talk about our own histories and use, as a, use that as a way to move forward with respect to anti-racism.
1: Very good points. Uh, let's get into some of the information that you're learning through this project. I mean, this is a history podcast after all. Let's talk about some of the histories that you're finding. I mean, I think people are starting to get more familiar now with the history of the bog, knowing that the bog existed, <clears throat> knowing which communities were living there. Even some of the family names are starting to become more familiar to people, the shepherds, the buyers, and so on. But what are you finding? Any new information? Is there anything that's surprising to you maybe?
2: I think there is such a lack of information anyway. So it's all been a a learning journey and it's all been very surprising in terms of I've had conversations with people who have said to me in the past, I I'm a descendant of the shepherds, and you know my my ancestors would have been black. And I and the people who have said this to me are, you know, are white. And so to me at the time, many years ago, it was very surprising. So it's been interesting to learn that side of the history, in terms of the shepherds in the eastern end of the island, but also to know that black people were here prior to Confederation. There's a long history here, and I think current the a lot of the current population in PEI don't necessarily understand that. And so when they see the new immigrants, and I know this is a conversation we want to have Mm -hmm. get to, they assume that we're just here, we're just coming. And it's like, actually, there's a longer history. And I know when I learned that history for myself, it helps me feel more connected to to being here. And so just knowing that the history goes back to Roma in Ile Saint-Jean, who maybe was the first person to bring enslaved people over to work the land and to create a colony here of settlers and using them to, as a, as a form of currency to establish that community here and to um to uh, exp- exploit yeah. their labor.
3: He did that with 12 enslaved people right You're back right. in I think it was 1732 32 yeah. 32, 1732 with 12 and uh, if I remember correctly he uh, enacted code noir right which allowed for slavery and uh, you know going back to that point that you made about new descendants in, in PEI, that's sort of the rhetoric that comes up most prevalently is people saying, you know, like I didn't grow up with many black people. I didn't, I never, it was never really diverse growing up here on PEI, but you're seeing that a lot more now. You're really seeing, you know, more more folks of color around here. And I take that with a grain of salt. And on one hand, I'm like, okay, there's truth to that. You know, there there is uh, more diversity here in PEI, but the more you sit with it, the more to me anyway, it feels like an erasure of our history, right? It feels like, well, where, where were you before? You know what I mean? Like, what were you seeing before? Were you not seeing us? Were you not seeing people of color before? And you're only seeing it now because you can't avoid it? Um, I mean, you still walk downtown and you don't see us, right? You're, that We're not represented here in PEI as much as we should be, um, as much as our history dictates we should be anyway. So um, I agree. I think there, there needs to be more of a conversation about where we come from. And we, we have been here.
1: This, that's, really, that's really interesting because <clears throat> two points that you each made are very connected. We're not seen, but also at what point did that community, like literally their skin gets lighter because there was black people in the bog, but there were also poor white people in the bog. So there would be intermarriages, there would be interracial children being born. And as the generations go on... You know, the melanin fades, and a lot of people in that community don't visibly look black anymore. And so at what point did that start happening? So was it that you literally weren't seeing us because you couldn't recognize us? Or is it more something like, we're in the bog, we're in this little space, we're in this little space, we're in Darkie's Hollow, but we're not integrated into the community. So we're not visible unless you go to those Mm -hmm. particular spaces.
2: I feel like it was probably a mix of both. I think that there was quite a bit of out-migration as well, of people moving further afield to look for um, prosperity. But I also, when you talk to descendants, you understand that those who can pass now would say that even as children in their history, there was a stigma around having that black ancestry. So as much as some of it's not seen because of the assimilation and because of the lack of melanin i also think that it's also been easier for some people to maybe not acknowledge that part of their heritage not for everybody i wouldn't say that but it's it's a painful past for some mm-hmm. people you know the 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 racism and the stigmatization that they would have had to endure it's e- it's easier to to shed that and to kind of leave that part of your history behind yeah and so i think for some people maybe this kind of renewed interest in this history might be difficult. Mm
3: -hmm. It's it's so challenging, too, because so much of what we're seeing with this project, I mean, this is sort of, again, maybe unanimous across uh, the North Americas and uh, anywhere where enslavement happened, but you couldn't make it unless you, you know, if you did identify even as a little bit white, if you had white ancestry or, you know, if you're, as you mentioned, our melanin was fading, it was dispersing in some ways right I, is if that was happening in order to again air quotes make it you had to acknowledge that part of your history you had to cling on to that whiteness to survive which is which is awful right which meant you had to let go of so much of your own culture and so much of your own history just to make it just to make that next step just to make that next generation um, i hope now and going forward i think we're seeing that there's so much pride in our in our blackness and in our skin and Maybe our melon never went away, right? It just it was surviving, and and we're here, and we're thriving now. So,
2: I think that's in part though is is that the the narrative's changing. So previously the narrative was always about sl- slavery, and you were a slave, but now we're talking about enslavement, and we're talking about resistance and resilience, and looking at the number of ways that people who were enslaved resisted their captivity. And so there's an element in pride. It's like we endured all of that and we're still here and we're you know and we are a community and there's vibrancy and there's success within those communities and so I think part of that changing narrative is allowing people to say that's my heritage and being able to own that and be proud of it Mm -hmm. and I hope that this resource will go part way in elevating those voices and will also inspire students to to see their history or to see see their ancestry and be proud of it.
1: Wonderful. Just two things that you said, Debbie, that I just want to clarify for the listeners in case, in case anyone's not aware. You mentioned the term passing. And I just wanted to uh, give definition to that. So when we say passing, we mean uh, white passing. So we mean if your skin is light enough as a black person or a person with African heritage or black heritage, uh, if your skin is light enough that you can pass for a white person. Um, and Debbie's just explaining that in those times when it was really difficult to be a black person, granted it still is, but um, times were different then. It was very difficult. And if you had the ability to pass as white, that just, for a lot of people, made life easier for them. So it's, it's a coping mechanism, really. It's a survival mechanism, as you mentioned, Aaron. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second thing that you said was slave versus enslaved or slavery versus enslavement. And just to kind of clarify that a little, um, that narrative is changing. We see, we talk more about um, enslaved people rather than slaves. Just as a means to acknowledge that um, we didn't, slavery almost seems like we put ourselves there willingly, like we are okay with it, like we wanted to be doing it, which wasn't the case. So we say enslaved just to, Bring to light that connotation that someone did this to us. Someone enslaved us. We didn't do this to ourselves. So that's that's how that narrative is shifting. So I just wanted to clarify that. So mm-hmm.
3: um, it's a noun versus an adjective right yes yeah.
1: yes. So can you tell us a little bit about like where you're finding? like where how are you researching this? Where are you finding more information?
2: So there is very limited information, as I said, and previously, And I know with the old stock, um, some, some of that has been oral history. And so I think when we first came to the table, we came with the understanding that there wasn't always going to be documentation to support the work that we were doing, and then that would be okay because there was oral history. And I think part of this changing or acknowledgement of history and when we think about indigenous history as well is understanding that there's a very strong oral tradition and respecting that Mm -hmm. and that it has its place as well. So that was a start Um, and then I know there have been some previous works done which have been based through court documents and we didn't really necessarily want to utilise those. Obviously they provided some, 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 some information but just being wary of the single perspective that 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 information offers and so we look at at more current research that's going on so what's happening in academia and certainly with black academics they are looking at other ways to interpret information so we have people like uh, Dr Whitfield and Dr Nelson, uh, Dr Cooper who are all doing current research and they're taking information and looking at it with new eyes so for example, Dr Nelson would look at a slave advert and not just necessarily, but would would analyse that in terms of the time of year, what we can learn about the enslaved person, about the time that they maybe fled their enslavement. And so just looking at a whole history from a different perspective, and um, Dr Whitfield went back through kind of trying to look at the data and see how many people maybe would have been in PEI that were enslaved, but also looking or bringing that perspective that somebody may be shown as a servant in the logs for when they were brought here, yeah. but that because of where the abolition of slavery was and the the climate at the time, that people have been creative. And so we, it takes us back to who's telling the story. So somebody who's maybe shown as a servant was in actual fact a slave or enslaved because how when we think about how much choice they had or if they were told, you can have your freedom but your child is going to stay with me, then as a parent, what choice do you have but to to follow on and, and stay in that situation?
1: Mm-hmm. And that's something that um, Aaron and I were discussing the other day, just in terms of presenting history. Who's presenting history and researching history is voice? Whose voice is present and whose um whose voices are present in our histories and why. And we, Mm -hmm. I mean, you had mentioned court records, finding information in court records. And, and, um, you know, I was listening to the Africville Forever podcast recently, and in one of the early episodes, the host Mm -hmm. says, um, the host says, uh, acknowledges that we've never written our histories. Our histories are never written by us. And that's, I think that's the shift in narrative that is, Happening now when we talk about our stories, our voices. Aaron, do you uh, want to talk a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, one of the one of the things that I think is important to acknowledge is that when we only look at hypothetically, if we only were to look at court documents, for example, for example, what would that narrative tell us? Not even what is in those documents per se. The people who were, you know. Uh, at trial or on trial, but more so what what does it mean to only look at a person through a court record, right? What is that saying about us? And what does it mean for somebody to present that and say, look at this history that I found of these people, when in fact there is a rich history of, you know, obviously enslavement, that is that is a big component of our history. But then what happened after emancipation, for example, and a lot of uh, Dr. Henry's work, Natasha Henry focuses on the celebrations, the parades, the music, the protest, the vitriol, right, that so much of that is is uh, int- integral to who we are as a people, uh, to what it means to break those tools of bondage and to celebrate. And we continue to do that today. So I think it's important that we continue to diversify where we're looking for our information. And uh, I think we're doing a great job at that uh, with with all the academics that you mentioned and, and honoring those, those oral storytellings. Um, Because there's so much that just cannot be found uh, in in court records exclusively or uh, any sort of formal documentation because those formal pieces of documentation weren't written by us, as you're mentioning, Tamara. So let's continue to honour those voices and and look at other ways that we can acknowledge our history. I
2: think it's important to mention also we've... With PEI, we we have had to borrow different things. We couldn't find slave adverts that were relevant to the island, yeah. so we've borrowed information from Nova Scotia, for example. Just with proximity, we can make the assumption that things with circumstances were fairly similar. But it's also important to know that PEI was the only province in Northern America that had enacted the Baptism Act, which meant that even if you were baptised and you were enslaved, that you weren't freed from your bondage. Mm-hmm. And so I think... As the only province to enact that, and even though we may have what would seemingly be a low uh, count in enslaved people, there was a reason that that act was brought into existence, and so that tells us it's like looking at the narrative of what what does that tell us as well.
3: Yeah, I, I want to stay on that for a moment. Like, what are the implications of that? So, if every other province is saying, if you you know get baptized, if you you know recognize yourself as a person of of Christ, or you know whatever that specific denomination might might refer to it as, but the Isle of Saint John, what we now call Prince Edward Island or Epicuit, uh, is saying something completely completely different. I, even if you get baptized, you're not free from from enslavement. Why is that important? And what why why do you think that was uh, enacted? Why do you think that that piece of legislation passed? And I do want to specify as well. This wasn't. Um, who was doing this was was, uh, the Isle of St. John and the the, uh, people who were colonizing the island who were doing this.
2: I think it came with, as you alluded to, with baptism became freedom or you were recognized as a person. And if you were recognized as a person, you had rights and weren't necessarily a slave. And so it was a way to mitigate being baptized and say, and it literally said, unless you were freed by your respective owner, then you were still enslaved. And so... If I, I know for me, if I was enslaved at the time and I found the way that if I got baptised and I could be, become free, then I would certainly um, take advantage of that and I should imagine most people would. And so this was a way to ensure that enslavement or their enslavement uh, was maintained and that it wasn't used as a, an escape or a, a way out of slavery.
3: Yeah, it says here, an act declaring that baptisms of slaves shall not exempt them from bondage, stated that people of African descent who now are on the island or may hereafter be imported or brought therein, being slaves, shall continue such unless freed by his or her, their respective owners.
1: Yeah, because everywhere else the rule was you couldn't enslave a Christian person. The Mm word, you couldn't enslave a Christian um
3: that was repealed in 1825 interestingly enough
1: yes this this legislation this piece of legislation one. in yeah, pi we- yeah, yes in 1825 which was you know nine years before slavery was abolished in the british empire um and that's because narratives were shifting then yeah. right and and in the term slavery was becoming unpopular and enslavement was becoming unpopular in their abolitionist movements and um are you just are on that are you finding anything about that about like how you know that that process to ending ending enslavement in PEI
2: I don't actually think it's an area that we've researched as such I, th- I feel that we're, there is so much to tell and I'm hoping that maybe they'll they'll become more work will come from this that this is not a one off but I think we're just at the moment we're focusing really the The project that we've created is setting some context is in the history and looking at the like an enslaved person. I think we often start with a story of a person of this is the moment that they became enslaved, but we forget that they had a life and a family, and a culture and a history that was prior to that. So setting some of that context would be the first goal, and then the the next step would be looking at enslavement and what that might what that might be like for a person. Um, for a woman, I should say, because we're focusing on women, and then the third piece again comes back to that wanting to acknowledge the resistance and the resilience of the people. And so, I'm hoping that the third lesson will be a celebration. So, looking at the the bog and the community that, in spite of everything that people endured, that there was a sense of community, which um, obviously was just which was lost when when the bog was. I don't know, for want of a better word, was that got rid of. I don't know how to say that. But um, so really wanting to focus on those stories so that we don't just maybe have the typical history of a slave, but we're looking at all elements, as I think Aaron alluded to as well before. It's like the person behind the story, the the, the broader perspective of how we can tell the history of the person rather than just making it down to a single event in their lives.
3: Yeah, history is really you know, it's a very interesting subject because you, it's so much of it is objective records, right? And you look, how far away is it? Four hours, five hours to Nova Scotia. And there's a plethora of information about uh, runaway enslaved peoples and and their histories. And even afterwards during emancipation and the celebrations that happened as a result of it. And there's such a rich, rich, rich history, which I encourage people to go uh, uncover. But you you know you come over here and it's it you look around and it's so much more challenging to find that but th- i mean there's a reason for it right there's it's I, I feel like it's very intentional um but i i think in a large part it's safe to assume a lot of what was happening in in Nova Scotia was was happening here but you know historians might argue that so
1: that's well, funny considering that we used to be one province at one point yeah i mean and you know we've Heard stories of people who live, black people who lived in PEI going back and forth or moving from PEI to Nova Scotia or coming to PEI from Nova Scotia. Um, so there, we know that there was a connection between the two provinces in that respect. Um, let's talk a little bit about how the work you're doing now can potentially inform our histories moving forward. So thinking about the work you're doing now, maybe the work we're doing now, um, the work you're doing with us, Aaron, a, you know, a lot of that is thinking about, is thinking about those histories and how do we collect those histories and make them accessible to the public, but also how do we continue to collect yeah. um, our information today? like like. I started in the intro saying, collecting our information today, acknowledging that our present is someone else's history, yeah. is the future's history, right? How do we how do we use this uh, moving forward?
3: I'm thinking specifically with respect to education and, you know, growing up uh, in the early 2000s uh, and thinking about going to school and, you know, what was taught to us during Black History Month by these white teachers so many white teachers who would teach this after, you know, maybe it wasn't Googling it at the time, but going to the library and finding a book or two on, on black history, and then coming in and teaching us about Martin Luther King Jr. And us thinking that was the full scope of our own history, right? Not realizing that, you know, Harriet Tubman was, you know, who lived in St. Catharines, Ontario, right, which was not far away from us. And, um, you know, Viola Desmond and so much of our history is here and and should be taught to us so I think learning our own history and better understanding it and and learning you know what was happening around the corner going to those spaces going to the bog or what is you know what used to be the bog and that space now and saying this is where this might have happened and this is where this person might have lived and these are the stories that they they passed down and what that does for us and our community, and say, well, actually, I knew that, that person's That was their great-great-grandfather, great-great-grandmother, and that's, that wasn't that far away, was it? That was not that long ago, was it? Wow, maybe we should, you know, should be thinking a little bit more. Uh, uh, we should be thinking about this a little bit more uh, to better inform how we need to move forward, and hopefully it will influence policy and how we're shaping policy to be more anti-racist and to acknowledge us as people. Um, I guess I'll leave it there.
2: I think it's a very broad question because I think in addition to the things that Aaron's talking about so there's a proverb that I saw a while back and it it kind of leads me into this work and it was the proverb is an African proverb and it's until a lion has its own storyteller the hunter will always have the best tales, and I love that just because it kind of helps you see that perspective I do think we are in a moment where people are beginning to realise that stories have been overlooked, have been intentionally erased and haven't been told. And not just within the black community, but understanding that if we need to have a, a more healthy and diverse community and understanding and compassion and empathy, all those things that go along with it, that we need to hear all those voices and we need to see them reflected. I would also say that beyond Canada, we also need to go back to our history before that because... It's only more recently as an adult um, have I discovered all the... I knew about the library in Timbuktu, but we're taught or we've been allowed to believe that Europeans discovered Africa. There was no civilization there. There was no systems or societies there that everybody was just really busy, concerned with existing. And what what I came to learn later was actually there were... There were universities. There were systems of taxation. There was art, and there was culture, and there were, you know, there were kings and queens, and it was a history that we we never were taught. And I think when you're you've been uprooted from a place and you have no necessary connection, that though it's really important to learn that and to learn pride in your heritage and your ancestry. And I think so as well as learning the contem- the more contemporary stories. And you're right, we absolutely need to do that. We also need to have pride in where we've come from, and we need to look at changing those stories that we've previously been taught.
3: Yeah. It's so frustrating because, you know, there's so much pushback and say, well, you know, that's that's African history. And it's like, well, wh- what do you think is being taught in schools right now? You know, it's not, you know, Canadian history in relation to the indigenous people who were here before. This is, you know, European history. This you know, So much of it is is Eurocentric. It does not reflect a, the diversity of... Uh, the people in in every classroom. So yeah, we absolutely. I, I love that idea of going back to our our roots, where we come from as people, and and starting there. That's a that's a great point.
1: I love this point too. Something that I have is something that has been a consistent thought stream, a consistent stream of thought. I, I'll say in my mind uh, for for a long time, for years, even as a kid is is belonging. So we talk about acknowledging those histories and celebrating our histories as African people or people of African descent, but for for black people who grew up in the West, we don't know what those histories are. I, I don't know what history I would celebrate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, there's Africa, which maybe I'll just state for anyone who's unaware, is not a country. <laughs> what? <laughs> But where in Africa are we talking about? Right. And we, you know, we can acknowledge that the majority of enslaved people were taken from West Africa. But what part of West Africa? Mm-hmm. And if you can figure that out, then what tribe might your family have been from? And if you can figure that out, what traditions did those tribes celebrate? And does your tribe still even exist? And, like, there's so much more to that that I— that. Um, that i think makes it really hard to celebrate for us to celebrate those specific histories generally speaking yes we definitely need to acknowledge that we existed before slavery we didn't just pop up for people to take us and enslave us but yeah did, do either of you have any thoughts around that like what is there a solution is there
2: cuz i've often wondered in terms of with i okay. feel like with that, with the indigenous population here, they've endured all of these horrors under colonial colonialism and with settler settlers. and uh, But they have that connection to the land that is undisputed and they can say we've been here for 12,000 years and they know their place and they feel their place and for them very much their way of being is their connection to the land. And so I've often wondered... In how that's different for Africans or people of African descent who have lost that connection to the land and and had that sense of displacement, and so wouldn't it be amazing? And I think back to watching Enslaved with um, Samuel L. Jackson, who did his exploration and went back and found his tribe, and you know, and and was recognised to walk the same way as members of his tribe. And what an amazing thing that would be to be able to come back and kind of to understand like oh my gosh I look like that person or I have those features or parts of me that exist that are expressed a part of my genetics that go back hundreds of years that I wouldn't even be aware of
3: yeah Yeah. even like I think about you know my my Caribbean roots right folks who were brought to the Caribbean right like that's a that's enslaved history too right like we are all from Africa right even and it's it's important to acknowledge our Caribbean history. I know it's important to acknowledge my own, but, you know, it goes beyond that. It goes before that, right? We were brought to the Caribbean, whether it be for, for sugar, you know, sugar cane. And, um, but what was happening before that and going back and understanding that right from the beginning. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
3: I, I guess I have a question specifically for you, for you Debbie. Um, what do you think the next step is for, for curriculum, for schooling here on, on PEI? What is, what does that look like? Do we, you know, need to revolutionize this system? Can it work by incorporating these, these lessons into schools? Um, What are your thoughts on that?
2: I think it's a multi-pronged approach. I think these resources are great, um, but are, are insufficient on their own. I, I, I think that within the department there is certainly a move to recognise the pieces that have been left out before and for me I think ideally it's embedding those stories within the curriculum so that they're not taught separately or as an adjunct or you know we do Black History Month so we teach Black History but that when we're teaching history so for example say if we're looking at World War Two, just as everybody everybody teaches that well Beyond World War II and what we would normally see about the participation of Europeans, there were Indian soldiers and there were African soldiers. And and so following those stories and those histories and not just looking at one perspective. So I I think there are lots of ways that we can incorporate it. Um, If you're looking at maths, you know, using quill work as geometric patterns, there are many ways, so I think we're going to have to be I think we have to be creative with how we look at curriculum and how we teach it, but it can be done. And I, and I hope and I believe we're on the beginning of that journey where people are saying how do we incorporate these different histories and different stories and ensure that they're represented because if we really want our students to succeed and we want uh, thriving communities, everybody, going back to what Tamara said, needs to have that sense of belonging.
1: Hmm. Very much so. I mean, curriculum is such a, a huge... I mean, there needs to be such a huge shift there. And I, and I don't think it's going to be a fast shift, but like you said, I think I agree that, that I you know, this is the beginning of something. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we finish this project, maybe we push for another and another, and slowly we can integrate some of this, um, I'll say in our quotes, diverse curriculum mm-hmm but teaching more teaching more global histories than than just the yeah. european the eurocentric version
3: i don't think a lot of people oh, sorry, did i i don't know if i cut you off there if you i
1: might. was just going to add and teaching it in in different ways um acknowledging that there are different ways of learning but go ahead
3: yeah i was just going to say i don't i hope people realize how big of a deal it is for you to be in the position that you are um, and doing the work that you're doing, because as you mentioned, it is a multi-pronged approach. Curriculum is one area that we need to focus on. Policy is another, and leadership is another. And, you know, to have you as a leader in the community doing the work you're doing, there absolutely, absolutely needs to be more of that, more women of colour, you know, uh, hiring more women of colour, mm-hmm. hiring more women of colour, um, and having that represent- representation truly from the top down, because if we start from the curriculum and just say this is sufficient... You know, cis white straight males providing black queer curriculum is it's going to be insufficient. We need we need more voices, and we need it from the top down,
1: mm-hmm.
3: and it needs to be in policy. Write it down. <laughs> Write it down. <laughs> we document.
1: recorded it. You heard yeah, it here exactly. first, people. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
3: absolutely.
1: So, Debbie, I know that you had talked a little earlier about some of the challenges um, that you're facing with this project in terms of. The lack of information that's available, but I'm wondering if there's any other challenges that you've faced in working on this project and in finding information.
2: Uh, I don't know if it's so much as in challenges i faced, but I certainly I think I am um, wary. I don't know if that's the right word around um, some of the community feedback that we might get. Uh, concern that community members may feel a certain amount of finger-pointing or blame if it comes out or it transpires that their families were involved in the enslavement of people and what that looks like for them. And so I think it's important that people understand that we're teaching history. We, we can't afford to, for want of a better word, to continue to whitewash history. We have to tell the history and we have to tell it factually and we have to tell it fully in order to honour that and to honour the people who experience or live through it. But um, it's about learning that history. And it's about acknowledging that history. And it's about moving forward and and how we can do that. That would be one of the concerns or something that I have in the back of my mind that may be a challenge that might arise as we move through this.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's understandable because, you know, we live in a call out culture right now, right? And so hearing that your family was involved in the enslavement of people could... A, be awful for you to learn. B, be awful if you already know this to have it publicized. And C, be awful because if it's publicized, you might get a lot of flack from others in the community um, who find this information out. And you might, you know, there's a chance that you might be ostracized as a family. And so you can understand the concerns. But I think when you talk about the importance of knowing, acknowledging and and learning and moving forward I think I think that's really important as as a family who may find this information out or have this information for example maybe be part of the resource or something I think it's important that that they know this is just a factual observation of what happened not a means of calling them out you know it I think it can be, but if we're talking about moving forward, we really have to use that as this mm-hmm. is your family history. How do you engage with that? How do you process that? And what are you doing to, um, to I, I I I don't I'm not sure what the phrase I'm looking for is, but something akin to dishonor that history, you know? Um, Aaron, do you have any thoughts on that?
3: I guess maybe, uh, maybe I'm I'm thinking about moving forward, but. I'm also thinking moving forward for whom, I guess, when we think about having, maybe if somebody wronged you and, you know, they apologize and then everybody moves forward immediately, it might make the situation better for the person who has done the wrong and maybe anybody around that person. But I'm thinking about those who were harmed and the time that it takes to grieve, to remember, to honor, to think about, recognize, and feel—if um, for you know, 150 years plus, nobody has called attention to the people in your community who have harmed you, uh, who have harmed your family. Obviously, it was their their uh, it wasn't them. It was their great grandfathers, likely great great grandfathers. Um, If, you know, their whole family line has been around you in your community for so long and no one said anything about it, and then all of a sudden they're like, hey, yeah, sorry, okay, let's move on, does that make that person feel better? Does it really, does it ameliorate that pain? Does it make the pain go away? So maybe it is important to, and, you know, I'm just thinking out loud here, maybe it is important to call out, air quotes, call out these people and and allow that time to say I'm hurt and this this hurt us and we are in pain. we've had a lot of pain we have suffered and we have been um, on the receiving end of a lot of trauma for so long. So maybe it is important that you really do acknowledge it beyond just a, an apology. you know maybe you understand truly what we're what we've been experiencing as a, as a group of people and, and what that means for us. so
1: And I'd like to challenge that in maybe saying, to kind of combine our two thoughts, maybe maybe what I'm saying is that we're not calling someone out, we're calling someone in. So we're calling someone in to learn about how this has affected us, to learn about how their history and our history connect and where the impact is there and what that impact is and how that's felt. And I think that's a learning opportunity. When I say learning, I mean learning for everyone to just know this happened, but learning their own family history and mm-hmm. and working through that in a way in a way that um I guess can bring people closer together in the end or gotcha. I think. Yeah.
3: I guess just to clarify maybe uh what I'm hearing you say, it's not so much bring people in so you could teach the uh The person about the harm that their ancestors have done to you but more so to encourage them to go off and learn it themselves
1: it could be either okay it could be either i think opening the door for them to to do either rather than opening a door opening a door that's going to cause such a negative impact that they're not going to bother learning Mm -hmm. that it's Mm going to cause more hate. It's going to spread more hate. It's going to, um, have more of a negative impact in the long run.
3: Yeah. And I, I say this only, uh, to be a contrarian because of course I'm an educator and my job is to educate (laughs) and I'm very much an advocate for let's make sure everybody understands and learns, but, um, just, you know, for the sake of thought, why has, why hasn't that person or those, those people, why haven't they gone and, and done that learning on their own? Why does it take us to tell them, right? When everybody seems to know that there is this trauma, why haven't you done that work on your own time without us having to say, hey, this really hurt us, you know?
1: I don't think that's contrary, and I think that's fact. And I think that's just how it is when we talk about any of the— if we're talking about what happened to the indigenous people of this land, what happened to the black people who were Mm. forcefully brought here when we talk about, you know— any When we talk about anyone on that um, oppressor scale, on that oppressor spectrum, mm-hmm. this is what it's taking. Yeah, This is just the question, no matter what the topic.
3: Mm-hmm. So if you're hearing this and you suspect that your family member has <laughs> oppressed us, go learn. <laughs> Now's your chance.
1: Yeah, I mean, one thing that was said at the Black Lives Matter March in 2020 was that people care more about being called racist than, than about the impacts right. of racism. And I think that's what we're dealing with here, right? No one wants to acknowledge. You know, there's a whole, there's a huge narrative around it wasn't me that did it. I didn't do this. I had nothing to do with this. But how do you, how do you disconnect yourself from your ancestors and your family history and that? And I think there just needs to be. I mean, we can call it reparations if we want. We can call it. Apologies if we want. <laughs> like there just there needs to be something and, and we won't get that. There needs to be some sort of reconciliation and we won't get that if they're not learning their own histories. There's a lot of talk about us learning our histories and telling our histories and from our perspectives and our voices, but it's very one-sided.
3: What do you think, Debbie?
1: I was just thinking, and
2: maybe it was the moving forward, when it was a trite phrase or simplistic phrase, but I think it really is about embracing reconciliation. And again, it's not about saying... Because we understand that you didn't do it, but, but but the acknowledgement there is that somehow your society and your family benefited from the enslavement of people. And so how do we acknowledge that and in the fact that you benefited that other people were harmed and how do we find a way to work through that so that it's a history that we know it happened that we that we don't make those mistakes again but we find a way to move forward together so for me it's always about community unification not division so how do we how do we learn our history and reconciliation is a big word, and it's a big word, as Tamara said, with the indigenous community. And I've been thinking about this because I know TLC is coming up and I, I want to do something around that. But how there can't be reconciliation without truth.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so we need the truth first and then we can work towards the reconciliation.
1: Yes.
3: Can't think of a better way to end it.
1: Yes. <laughs> Agreed. I think we should leave it there. Um, thank you so much for sharing about the project and sharing your knowledge around the project and and around this topic and these histories and stories and uh, Thank you to PI museums and heritage for allowing us to do this and thanks to Fiona for producing the episode for us and Thanks to the listeners for listening
3: And thank you to these two incredible uh, Women of color who are doing all this work in this community. I know this project is the black women's history project so I do think it's important to continue to acknowledge uh, the black women in your community who are doing incredible work so thank you
2: for thanking everybody just thank you to the hosts and thank you for everybody for making this happen and thank you for all the amazing things that are happening within in our community right now it's Mm -hmm. it's wonderful to see
0: Thank you, Debbie, Tamara, and Aaron for your time today, and to Black Cultural Society for putting this episode together. If you want to learn more, head to bcspei.ca. The Hidden Island is produced by the PEI Museum and Heritage Foundation. Check us out on social media or at peimuseum.ca, where you can donate or purchase a membership. I want to take a moment and thank our sponsors, Confederation Center of the Arts, Upstreet Brewing, and Beyond the Broom Consulting. Thank you for your support of this show. Finally, shout it to Adam Glant, who produces our amazing theme music. Thanks for joining, and we'll talk to you next time on The Hidden Island.